Where are you going to get a sine wave, though, Danny? You're going to have to go to freesound.org and find a sine wave. I think I've got one or two sine wave generators on this computing device in front of me. You can actually draw one in Renoise if you want. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way of doing it. I mean, I could literally program one. That's true. (laughs) Yeah, 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 that's right. Write a Haskell program to emulate a ZX Spectrum doing... Oh, but the ZX Spectrum can't do a, a sine wave. It can only do square waves. I have a question for you. Oh, yeah? One of the things that we've talked previously about the uh, internet is that it's very easy to become very blinkered, limited only to the things that you're interested in. You know, many of the sites that uh, you would go for just a quick browse through things that might be interesting to you, for example, Twitter or YouTube or, you know, sites like that. Obviously, you're only going to be seeing things that uh, you have actively gone and followed yourself. Right. And, you know, there is obviously there's a lot of uh, technology behind the scenes that's working to try and show you things that are relevant to try to sort of stretch out your interest in either directions. Yeah. But um, one of the great things, of course, about, you know, the good old-fashioned printed magazine is that, uh, yeah, we've talked about this before, but on the one hand you could say that, uh, well, it's an editor's idea of what might be interesting to you. And you may not like that. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you could say that, well, it's curated content designed to sort of gently force your perspectives out sideways and to broaden the kinds of things that you're exposed to. Depending on the magazine. Yeah, of course, depending on the magazine. And the internet, of course, it's a little, it, it becomes harder to do that if you don't actively make steps yourself to explore. I mean, there are, there are ways to sort of, there are, there are obviously sites and places where content is curated so that you can sort of be exposed to other things. But I'm not sure if you remember, but about two or three years ago, there was an online, there was a, it was an app, it was an iPad app, it was called Zite, Z-I-T-E. Hmm. Did you ever see that? No, I don't think so. Okay, so Zite was, you, you're aware of Flipboard? No. Nope. Oh, you're not? Okay. I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Uh, got a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> right, well these are actually things from several years ago, so... Uh, Zite and Flipboard, uh, well, Flipboard is and was and probably, as far as I know, still is uh, one of the more popular apps where it's, um, you can sort of pull together your social media feeds from Facebook or Twitter or whatever um, you follow, as well as having it algorithmically recommend other articles from around the internet based on all kinds of sort of technology that's working behind the scenes to link things together. Right. And... Flipboard actually bought the Zite company, and uh, prior to that, Zite was basically an iPad magazine, essentially, mm. where when you start it up, and this formula will sound very familiar to you because many apps do this, but this was many, many years ago, and I believe sort of early days for this kind of technology, but basically, when you start the Zite app up, you would select some interests that you're interested in, for example, you know, sport, lifestyle, technology, music, whatever. Mm. And then it would go together and it would go out and uh, pull together algorithmically uh, articles uh, and basically blog articles from around the internet. And then as you're reading them, you can either thumbs up the article or thumbs down the article and that will sort of slowly train the system to um, give more effective narrowed results based on your interests. Right. And the reason that I bring this up is because I really miss Zite because Flipboard purchased Zite and then shut it down and then used Zite's kind of back-end recommendation technology to power its own system. 
unfortunately, since then, after they bought a purchase Zeit and then shut it down, I'd never really found Flipboard to be as good as Zeit was. Mm. It's the only app that I had found at that stage, which was really, really, really good at learning the things that I was interested in and then sort of kind of like walking in the direction that I wanted it to, but then taking a sidestep every now and then and saying, oh, here's an article that is a little bit off kilter from what you're interested in, but close enough that you may actually find it very fascinating. Mm. And uh, yeah, it was a, an excellent, excellent system. Whatever it was doing, whatever it was doing, it was doing it very well because I always found myself sort of fairly engrossed in the Zeit app and uh, reading all these interesting articles from sources that I wouldn't have ever really thought to read before. Mm. So... Zeit's no longer with us, and Flipboard's, uh, for whatever reason, uh, I'm not sure, but it just doesn't seem to work for me as Zeit used uh, work for me as well as Zeit used to. So my question is to you: Do you have any apps or websites or services that you use to get, give you fresh new content from sources that normally you wouldn't think to follow, but are close enough to things that you're interested in that you would find them fascinating and probably would go ahead and read and sort of expand your horizons like that what what do you do for that well my answer probably won't be that satisfying i use the apple news app mm -hmm. which i think does something quite similar to to what you're describing as i as doing you you can subscribe yourself to a number of news feeds but i think it will also pull in sort of other ones that it thinks will interest you right i'm fairly happy with that but probably the main place that i get my hot new content is Twitter. All right. And Twitter, obviously, the the algorithm, as it were, is other people. Right. I follow people whose interests align to some degree with my own, but because everyone is a little bit different, they, they share some interests with me and they have some of their own interests. Right. And so they will retweet things sometimes that I would not, that would fall outside of the boundary of, things that I would usually read. Mm. And, you know, sometimes they can be very interesting. Right. So that's probably the main thing that I use for that. Because if, uh, for actual subscriptions, I'm kind of old school and I tend to stick with RSS, mm. uh, which just gives me exactly what I want, right, and doesn't have any clever al algorithms right, trying right. to yeah. introduce me to new stuff. So Yeah, I, um, I'm the same. That's because uh, I still use RSS every day, mm. actually. <laughs> Uh, and I, I use that through Feedly. So I use Feedly as well. I never used Google Reader. Oh, really? I used to use, I used RSS since, pretty much since it first came out in like 2000 or whatever it was. Right. And I can't remember what I used to read it originally, but I'm pretty sure that the Google Reader didn't exist at that point. Mm. And then Google Reader came and, and I was vaguely aware of it. And then Google Reader shut down. Right. And there was this huge outcry on the internet. And everyone was like, the world is ending. Right. RSS is dead. Yeah. And I was so sort of perplexed by this because I had never used it. And I was happily continuing to use RSS in the way that I had always used it. Right. And I still do. And I mean, it's definitely, I'm, I'm not casting doubt on what they were saying because I've heard, for example, John Gruber, who makes the, the Daring Fireball website, he said that he lost like some large like 30 percent or 50 percent or some outrageous percentage of his views mm. just dropped away and never recovered ah. after after google reader shut down so it right. was definitely a, a big deal 
but it just seems so weird to me because I don't know, I don't really understand what was special about Google Reader mm. or why why everyone kicked up such a fuss about it. I used Google Reader actually. I think one of the reasons uh, that Google Reader was missed mm. uh, when it was shut down, I think, is because the same reason that I missed it when it was shut down, and that is that it was my introduction to the whole thing of RSS. Right. I had heard of RSS and uh, sort of had some cursory understanding of how it worked and what it did, but never really thought to actually use it until Google Reader came around when it just sort of made using RSS, I guess, basically very simple. Mm. And, you know, the, the interface was, uh, you know, I mean, um, fairly Spartan, but functional and, uh, you know, allowed you to, to do what it was there to do, which is basically, you know, have a look, scroll through a list of uh, feeds and things that had come in for the day and choose a few to read or read later or read them in line or just look at them as a, as a bunch of post titles if you wanted. And so when it was, when it shut down, actually I went through that same uh, kind of sort of shock that lots of other people did too. It's like, well, what am I going to do now? It wasn't because I thought there were no other options out there for reading an RSS feed. It's just that I guess because it was for me the first introduction, the first sort of doorway into the capabilities of RSS, that's the reason why it was kind of shocking Right. Yeah. yeah, maybe that was it. Probably more shocking than the reality of, you know, a post-Google reader world, what are we going to do now? More than that was actually the thought that Google would think that it wasn't useful enough to maintain. Right. Like, that was more shocking <laughs> because, you know, RSS is great. You know, it's fantastic for, um, for what it does. It still seems quite surprising to me as well because I'm – I mean – it feels like they would get a lot. I mean, presumably the reason they do everything is to get data, right? Right. <laughs> Either to get data or to use the data to, to run ads. Right. And it feels like they would have the opportunity to, to do both quite effectively with Google Reader because right. they would get a lot of information as to the sort of aggregate of who's reading which content mm. and where those sort of interests cross over and, and things right. like that. Yeah. And they would also be able to put their ads on every page. So it feels like they would get a lot of the advantages that they're getting from the AMP thing they're doing now. Right. But anyway, I, yeah. I guess I'm not them, so what do I know? <laughs> yeah, but I think just just the fact that they thought that it should be shut down, and I think that was more shocking and uh, kind of scary for people. Right. More so than, you know, what are we going to do now? There's, there's nothing else. I get the feeling that was like a, a real wake-up call for... For people that these online services, unlike software as it had essentially existed until that point, which mm. is you bought it and ran it on your computer, you know, increasingly services are moving onto into the browser and as centrally managed cloud services. Mm. And you're you're sort of at the whim of the people running the service who may decide to shut it down or to sell it, or the company itself may fold. Mm. So you know, I think that was for many people. That was probably the first time they were struck by the realization that that was this was a possibility and will continue to be for the vast majority of software that people run now. Right, right. It could disappear at any time. Right. Yeah. One of the things I think, if I recall correctly, uh, Zite didn't actually allow you to subscribe to anything. You selected an interest, and then it would just serve up articles that match that interest and then slowly mm. kind of refine the algorithm as you selected articles that you liked or that you didn't like mm. and it didn't actually ever you know there was no way to sort of always see 
articles from this specific source. Mm. And so as somebody who reads uh, RSS daily, it was perfect. It just gives you just a little bit of extra scope outside the things that you would normally be looking at. It was perfect because you already have RSS. Exactly, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, I guess Flipboard tries to fill in that gap because Flipboard can work basically like an RSS reader as well. But um, anyway, no, interesting. I was just wondering, uh, you know, Twitter is really, uh, Twitter is great. Uh, and as we've talked about many, many times, it's, uh, you know, definitely my favorite of all of the uh, social media platforms out there. But uh, sort of algorithmic curation of things outside your interests and, you know, your friends recommending things by retweeting. Uh, that will be a slight stretch of your interest. You know, th- those things are obviously quite different. Right, yeah, they are. I think I understand that the world is moving that way and I'm slowly getting used to it. I, qu- I quite enjoy the uh, the automatic playlists on Apple Music, for example. Mm. But I always feel like I want a bit more control with a lot of those services. Like, mm. it probably just it takes a while to train them or whatever, but... I feel like I want to choose these other things right. that I want to read. Right. So I don't know. I, feel, I think I, it's just taking me a while to get into this new world of, of algorithmic curation. And that's why I like Twitter, because it's actually human curation. I mean, I curate the humans. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then they they post things that are interesting to them. And... For me, that works better, I think. I mean, mm. I guess there's no reason to say that AI couldn't essentially exactly replicate that experience eventually. Mm. But I don't know. Yeah, mm. I, like the, I like the human nature of it. I like the fact that when, when I see something I like on Twitter, I don't sort of tap a heart which informs an algorithm a bit right 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 i tap a heart which the other person on the other end sees and thinks to themselves oh danny was interested in that you know i like that human connection that feels sort of very nice to me Mm. Uh, and i don't feel the same sort of emotional attachment obviously to right to an algorithm interesting in other news i made an interesting realization a few days ago this is uh completely unrelated to technology mm. <laughs> but i wanted to get your your views on this interesting realization that i had in the middle of playing a song with this band that i'm in at the moment mm-hmm. uh, so we have our big big performance coming up on uh, on actually the very day that this uh, podcast episode is going to be going out mm-hmm. actually probably right about the time that it, this podcast goes out i'll actually be on stage <laughs> with the uh, 250 other singers. Very exciting. If anybody listening is at that performance, <laughs> yeah. hold up your phone and take a photo. <laughs> right. Yeah, so basically, um, as, a, as I've mentioned before, I, I play bass guitar in, this, uh, in the backing band for uh, this 250-voice pop choir. And uh, the big performance is on Saturday. And uh, tickets were sold out in, the matter, in a matter of hours. Mm. So... Uh, we have about 1,000 people coming to listen, which is fantastic. Great. It's by far going to be the, the, the biggest scale performance that I've ever done because uh, in the bands that I've played in previously, uh, it's only sort of been, you know, small pubs or 
parties or small events or things like that and never something on this mm. this scale. So it's going to be pretty incredible. So during the last uh, rehearsal for it, which was a few days ago, it's coming to a critical state now because the performance is on Saturday and therefore, you know, you you got to get it right. <laughs> you got to you got to be showing everybody that you've done your homework and you've done your practice and that you course, know, yeah. you, you're reliable and you can get this right. And it's interesting the pressure the the pressure the, the the kind of games that your mind will play in situations where you are kind of relying mostly on muscle memory. Mm. Your mind will play interesting tricks on you when you are thinking too much about that muscle memory mm. and this hap- this happened to me i didn't make i didn't fluff up i didn't make any mistakes during the rehearsal which is great however i found myself questioning what i was doing you know like i see on the charts in front of me that there's a c sharp coming right right <laughs> and and i know where a c sharp is on the fretboard of my bass yes. in fact i know where all the c sharps are on the fretboard of my bass <laughs> and yet there was like a moment when my finger just sort of froze and I thought, hold on, mm. C sharp, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's kind of like the, you know, you, you, I'm not sure if you have this as well, but there is a funny linguistic psychological phenomenon where when you're speaking, sometimes a certain word will just come out as you come out to you as being so completely strange in how yeah, it sounds yeah, yeah. that you, you just sort of sit there for a moment of, you know, five seconds, just thinking about a word, right. thinking that is such a bizarre sound. Right. What does it even mean? Right. I don't know. Yeah. And then a moment later you snap out of it and you, you know, you're back into speaking comfortably. Sometimes, sometimes it goes on for hours. Does it? And you're just like looking at you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. I'm trying to think of a word where this has happened, but I definitely know what you're talking about. Also another very similar phenomenon that I think both of these things have technical terms to describe them. But do you ever look at your own hands and just think, the f*** is going on with these hands? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, they're like a stranger's hands. And you're like, but they're definitely connected to my arms. <laughs> no, I've never. Have you ever done that? That's, pr- no? that's amazing. And I've never had that. No. Really? I've had that quite a few times. And I think that is also, I don't think it's just me. I think that is a, a reasonably common thing <laughs> to happen. That's amazing. But just the familiar becomes extremely strange to the you. The last time it happened to me with a word, I can remember specifically, it was the word please. <laughs> the please? Wow. <laughs> please. Like, I, I just remember, I, I think, was I saying it or typing it? I, I think I was saying it. And then I just sort of had this moment where I thought, please, please, please. <laughs> like that is, that. what a strange sound. Like what is it, please, what does that even mean? Uh, anyway, so with musical performance, I once uh, read a quote in a uh, bass player's magazine by the very, very famous session-based guitarist called Nathan East, mm. who's um, an American session bassist who's played with uh, loads and loads and loads of very famous people over the 80s and 90s and noughties and and presently still. Anyway, he said that his approach is when he's in the studio, he takes on the attitude like he's sort of being the showman on a stage. Mm. And when he's on a stage, he takes on the attitude like he had the pressure of recording in the studio. Mm. And he said that's how he sort sort of stays very, very present and connected in the moment on the stage totally focused, totally connected and committed to what's going on around him Mm. so that he doesn't make any mistakes 
And then in the studio, that's when he sort of lets loose and sort of tries to enjoy the experience more and have more fun and just sort of, you know, let it all play out uh, without thinking about it too much. I suppose that makes sense, really, because you can always record it again if you mess it up in the studio. Right, right. Well, yeah, that think that kind of philosophy doesn't really help in, in my situation, whereas because if I think too much about what I'm doing, I get like what happened the other night where... I see a C sharp coming and I'm just looking at it thinking, what is that? Like, what, <laughs> what, 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 yeah. It's kind of like, um, I, I think I can liken it to running down a staircase two steps at a time. Can you do that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, you know, you see people when you're in a hurry, you, you, people will kind of gallop down a staircase two steps at yeah. a time. Yeah. Now, if you actually stop to think about what you're doing, you definitely fall over. Fall down the stairs straight straight down onto, onto your face because, like galloping down two stairs at a time is actually extremely scary and difficult. Mm. But if you just don't think about it and you look where you want to go and you have it in mind that you want to go quickly, then generally your body will take over and just sort of naturally carry you down the stairs and your legs will do all the wonderful things that they need to do to compensate for your balance and speed and momentum and all of that so that you can just take step by step by step skipping a step as you go run down and you're down the bottom and there's no trouble this is similar to your story about telling a child not to look at their cup as they walk across the room with a cup of water because uh, yeah. look at where they're going they won't spill it after you told that story on the podcast the next day i went to get a cup of coffee at work and i tried your trick of not looking at the cup and looking at where i was going instead and I got coffee everywhere. <laughs> Maybe that's because you were stumped by the, the funny things on the ends of your elbows. That with all these digits. <laughs> what is this thing here? <laughs> it's for holding coffee, I think, but it's not working. How, how is that coffee <laughs> meant staying afloat? <laughs> well, I have uh, no advice for you, Danny, other than be more careful, I guess. Mm. I went back to the looking at my coffee as I was walking method. It seemed to work better for me. It seemed to work better for you. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the thing that I'm nervous about actually for the Saturday performance is not so much making a mistake. It's falling into this trap of thinking too much about these notes. Right. And, you know, and because of that, basically stumbling as I'm trying to gallop down two stairs at a time. Mm. That's kind of what I'm worried about. Unfortunately, in this specific case, there are like 16 songs and every one of them has, you know... C-sharps. Yes, C-sharps, but also <laughs> very, very... And E-flats as well. You know, so anyway, very, very specific instructions that are, are required for, you know, the the queuing and the entry and the exit because you've got 250 people and, like, it's a four- or five-part choir and there's four of us in the band and it's a lot of sequencing and, and queuing and stuff like that. Mm. So that means that all of us are actually going to be reading from music. None of us have tried to sort of memorize all the music just because this it's, it's so complicated all this all the sequencing mm. sure and that makes it even harder because you know when you've got the music in front of you and you're looking at the music you you become very focused on the music instead of being focused on what other people are playing and the sounds that are around you and basically the right. you know the experience of what you're doing and your, your purpose there musically speaking uh so yeah it's going to be uh it's i'm, I'm a little concerned about my ability to remain completely completely focused and connected through the whole thing but uh anyway wish me luck good luck do you have any ideas about ways to try and mitigate this problem or are you just gonna give it a shot and hope for the best another fine piece of advice from a bass player that i respect a lot called cody wright who is a, a um, bass player who's made his fame by actually being extremely good by uh, uh playing bass with a pick 
mm. very, very funky uh, pick player. He said that when he's about to go on stage, the most important thing to do is to make sure he's just loose, totally loose, mm. like no tension in his shoulders, no tension in his face, no tension in his wrists, just completely floppy. Mm. And uh, he says that being nervous, it's a natural reaction for your body to sort of stiffen up. Yeah. And if you do that, you'll tend to play ahead of the beat. You'll tend to push the rhythm. Uh, you know, it, it won't sort of lock in so easily because you'll be sort of feeling like you're rushing or kind of feeling like you're stumbling forward. Whereas, uh, you know, for a bass player, often it's helpful to be slightly behind the beat and slightly, you know, pulling things back instead of pushing things forward. I guess it depends on the kind of music you're playing, but... So his advice is just to completely, completely loosen up and just concentrate on feeling loose and feeling uh, free of any kind of tension or stiffness in your body. Right. I think that's really, really fantastic advice because you definitely just sort of subconsciously, you know, you'll you'll tense up when you're nervous or you'll be, you'll be breathing short breaths instead of, you know, normal, regular deep breaths. Yeah. Yeah. Breath control also has a huge, uh, huge effect. Yeah. You do a spot of yoga before you get on. <laughs> yeah <that's laughs> speaking of yoga actually my wife has been doing yoga teacher training for the last year and her graduation ceremony was last sunday fantastic so she is officially qualified to teach yoga now so congratulations mrs denning maybe she can teach me sure she can i have uh probably what is the world's most inflexible body <laughs> <laughs> like i can barely even bend over to tie up a shoelace it's it's pretty bad right yeah yeah well she could you have the advantage of being able to speak Japanese. She only teaches in Japanese at the moment. Oh, okay. But. How is her clientele in the States? Does she, or I guess she hasn't got to that point yet, if she's just got her qualification? Well, she had to teach actual lessons as, as part of this course. Right. So she does have a group. She's got a group of about four to six Japanese women who are living here. And she teaches the classes in Japanese. Mm. And she's not actually allowed to work on the visa she's on mm -hmm. so she's not allowed to charge for these lessons so they're just they're just free sort of amongst friends i see but she's been enjoying that she's continuing to sort of do that mm. as a way to keep in the game while she also is, is doing a lot of english classes and stuff this year but mm. it's been really interesting because this course it's a year-long course and I think you get two qualifications with it. You get one, which is by the actual particular yoga school that she's with, which is associated with like a, a university in Bangalore, I think. It's a, like an Indian offshoot here. Right. And then as well as that, you can also get what's called an RYT qualification, which is an internationally recognized sort of I think all these various yoga schools register with this central group or something. Mm. And so the, essentially these qualifications are equivalent. But the course was taught, obviously here we are in America, the course was taught entirely in English mm. and uh, involved a lot of quite complicated <laughs> topics mm. so that as as she was studying it, there was a lot of stuff that we needed to go through together that I would help with the translation. So she would go through, she would have these lessons uh, at the weekends. Mm -hmm. The first three months of the course were just like lessons, four hours on Saturday, four hours on Sunday every week for like three months. Mm. And she would record the entire lesson in as audio mm -hmm. and then come back and we would essentially listen back through the whole thing and pause it and translate wow. things and talk about things. 
uh, to be fair, not the whole thing. The first two hours tended to be quite physical and the actual, you know, the physical side of yoga, mm. uh, the, the poses and the, the, way, the breathing exercises and all this. And that was easy enough for her to follow. Uh, so she didn't need my help for that. But the second half, the latter two hours of each Saturday and Sunday would be on topics like the philosophy and history of yoga like and the anatomy behind it, you know, right. the actual way the body works and the relationship between between these poses they're learning in the physical portion. Very difficult. And the actual biology of how your body works. Obviously, she's she's a qualified nurse, so she also has a leg up there. Mm. Um, but still, there was a lot that we had to go through together. And as you know, I am not famous for my interest in yoga. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I do, I am interested in philosophy and uh, obviously the Greek philosophers and others besides. Right. And and obviously the ancient Greek as well, because the yoga is, all the texts are written in Sanskrit, mm. which is another ancient language that actually has quite a few relations with, you can see some of the similarities between Sanskrit and ancient Greek. So that was all very interesting. So we got to have lots of very interesting conversations. And it's been interesting for me recently. I've been reading Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of ideas in there that really sort of I can recognize from the things that my wife was studying from Patanjali's yoga scripts. And uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of shared ideas about the... You know, I think Marcus Aurelius talks about how you can only consider yourself to have this moment mm. so that if you die at 20 or if you die at 100, you haven't lost anything more by dying earlier because you never had the future in the first place. Mm. And you don't have the past either. You only have the, the present moment That's in, in your actual possession, and that, which is a really interesting idea. That is interesting. In, in its own right. And also th there was a lot of parallels with, I felt with with a lot of the stuff she was studying in yoga. So so it's actually been a very you know I mean I was <laughs> I won't pretend I wasn't a little reluctant <laughs> right <laughs> to go into, into yoga in that much detail. But it's been a really interesting course and an interesting year. Can we just uh, sorry to interject, but can we just wind back a little bit there? Yeah, I'm a little bit uh, confused by that philosophy. So you only have this moment. Is is that is the definition there of moment on a sort of a like a very very large macro scale of of history your life is only a tiny speck of that so therefore whether you live 20 years or 100 years your moment is 20 years long or it's 100 years long and that's all you have no it isn't representing your entire life as a single moment that's not what it means hmm. it means it in a literal, literal sense in that your your future may come or it may not, and your past has already been. Hmm. But the thing that is in your hands, in your possession right now, is this moment and nothing else. So I understand. In fact, I understand that much. But then the bit where it falls apart for me is the idea that because of this, whether you live twenty years or whether you live a hundred years is the same. Because if you live a hundred years, wouldn't you have you know basically eighty years more of moments? Well, you you may have had those but you only have each moment for that fleeting moment at a time it's like i don't know it's <laughs> like if i have a tenor in my hand right and then i 
throw it away and pick up another tenor. I only ever had a tenor. Right. Let me read the, the extract. Okay. Okay, this is from the Haynes uh, translation. Okay. It says, Even if thy life is to last 3,000 years, or for the matter of that, 30,000, yet bear in mind that no one ever parts with any other life than the one he is now living, nor lives any other than that which he now parts with. The longest life, then, and the shortest, amount to the same. For the present time is of equal duration for all, while that which we lose is not ours, and consequently what is parted with is obviously a mere moment. No man can part with either the past or the future. For how can a man be deprived of what he does not possess? These two things, then, must needs be remembered. The one, that all things from time everlasting have been cast in the same mould and repeated cycle after cycle, and so it makes no difference whether a man see the same things recur through a hundred years, or two hundred, or through eternity. The other, that the longest liver, and he whose time to die comes soonest, part with no more the one than the other. For it is but the present that a man can be deprived of, if, as is the fact, it is this alone that he has. And what he has, not a man... What he has not, a man cannot part with. Mm. Your accent is perfect for reading things like that, Danny. <laughs> if I had read it, it would have been, uh, what no man has no deprived of part of. <laughs> I love your impression of yourself, which sounds nothing like you. <laughs> can, can you do an impression of yourself? Uh, no. <laughs> I, think, I think I am. That's, that's, well, that's a very deep topic in itself, but... I think that is that is what I am constantly doing. So anyway, actually, yes. So after you've read that to him, now it makes sense. So the the basic right. the idea is that your future and your past are not things that you can possess. Right. So exactly. the only th so therefore you cannot be deprived of something that you don't possess because it doesn't belong to you. The, the only thing that you have is this moment right now. Right. So if you think about it in that context, then whether you have you know. A future of 80 years in front of you or a future of a few minutes in front of you yeah that is not yours to possess so therefore what you have is the same as what the person who's living for 100 years has and that is just the moment right now right yeah and there's see. arguably a difference between the man who has 80 years in potentia and one who has a few minutes right but right? you don't the, know that the one who has those but you, you, you neither know it nor do you possess it. It's not right. yours to lose, right? Right, right? You were not deprived of it. Mm. Something was, mm. possibly. If there's a split in the, the space-time continuum, you know, if there's a parallel universe in, and in one of those universes you live to be 80 and mm. in the other you die at 35, the universe in which you die earlier was deprived of 45 years of your life. Mm. But the individual that exists in that universe was not mm. because he never had it. So the, the idea of the future not belonging to you is very easy to understand because mm. you, you can't predict it and you have no idea what's going to happen. The idea that the past, your past, not belonging to you, that's very fascinating because that's harder to understand, I think, because you could say, right. well, I was the person who initiated these actions. I was the person who made these choices, who uh, created these outcomes by my own actions. So these outcomes, which have now gone into the past because of me, 
is it then possible to say that my past does not belong to me, even though for the, for the most part I was in control of it? Yes, that that is an interesting question. I think maybe we can arrive at least at what Marcus Aurelius is talking about through the same method that we did just now, mm. which is to invert this idea of belonging with being deprived of something. Mm. Where does it make sense for someone to be deprived of their past? How can that be? How can someone take your past away from you? I mean, you can forget it mm. if you get amnesia, but it still happened. Right. So I think what he's talking about is, I mean, he does talk about possession, but he's, the way that he phrases it is that you cannot be deprived of anything but the moment you now have. Mm. You know, on the other hand, say you were captured, kidnapped, perhaps, and kept in captivity for five years. You could argue that your kidnapper deprived you of five years of your life that otherwise you could have used for something else. Mm. But then, yeah, I guess if those are events that you had no control over, then you being in captivation is still your moment. You know, that is still, you know, that, that is... Right. Before that happens, you have no idea that it's going to happen, so you can't possess that event happening. After it's happened, it is happening still, and the actual fact that it is happening is producing sort of a, a timeline of history as you're going along, even though you're in cap captivity. So, yes, again, that's true. And going back to this idea of which I don't think uh, Marcus Aurelius had the advantage of, of anybody having thought of this yet. So he probably uh, couldn't fall back on this thought experiment. But this idea of parallel universes, mm. where in one universe, you are captured, and in the other universe, you are not. Mm. Again, in a sense, you could say that in the universe in which you are captured, each individual instant there is an alter alternate instant in the parallel universe where you weren't captured right? that you could have had had you not been captured. Mm. And so there is an argument to say, well, the kidnapper deprived you of that potential moment, but they can only, de de they can only deprive you of the potential right? because you never had that actual moment. Exactly. It's all very interesting. Where does the idea of parallel universes come from? I'm not sure where it first originates. People often talk about it in a sort of science fiction capacity and with reference to Einstein. Mm. But I'm sure the idea must have existed before that. Mm. I want to say there was some sort of science fiction in the mid-19th century that explored, at the very least, time travel right. and Parallel, the parallel universe idea often comes along with time travel because mm. the, the moment you, you think about the idea that, that some, something could change a thing that has already happened in the past, mm. then it seems like a kind of inevitable conclusion that there must be a splintering of potential universes or possibilities. Right. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what the origin is. Because using Marcus Aurelius's framework, you know, the, the, from that, standpoint the idea of parallel universes is kind of amazingly fantastical really that the, right. the idea that any moment is actually every single moment that is happening is actually a branch of different outcomes that are all actually playing out somewhere <laughs> and you happen you're only on one of them or your conscious self is only aware of the moment 
on one of these branches, but every decision, every outcome, every result. Every, every flapping of a butterfly's wings. Right, somewhere in the world. Um, uh, produces, you know, a multitude of different outcomes, which another version of yourself is traveling along on a different moment. You know, that if you just take from the, the, the standpoint of Marcus Aurelius's philosophy about the moment, past, the moment, and the future, yeah, that whole idea is is really far-fetched. Right. So it's pretty amazing. You know, it's, uh, I guess it's testimony really to, uh, you know, the... Um, amazing capability of the human mind to construct these extremely abstract ideas and hypotheses and and sort of explanations for reality and existence and it's pretty incredible isn't it right i mean we we have no way of knowing whether there are parallel universes or whether the the universe is constantly being splintered into these different potentials mm. but even if there aren't which seems reasonably likely it's a useful way to consider the problem mm. because it gives you another dimension that, like I say, in the way that Marcus Aurelius is is presenting it here, and I'm only like three chapters into this book, so it's possible he, he explores this further later, but we, we have an advantage over him in considering this idea because we can consider this other axis of like, well, yes, we have this moment now. And in a sense, this moment is all that exists mm. in a concrete sense, because all the moments in the future have the potential to exist, but don't exist necessarily. And the vast majority of them won't. In fact, there are an infinite number of potential futures that don't happen. And on that scale, the one that does happen tends to zero, right? <laughs> so, mm. What do you mean by that? Well, in that... If you take the, the probability of a thing happening, it is the chance of it happening, like, like say, rolling a dice. Right. The probability that you're going to get a one is one over six, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. One out of six times it will, it will happen. Mm. Well, if the dice, the die, had an infinite number of sides, the probability of getting any single number would be zero. Hmm. And yet, that's what actually happens. <laughs> um, you've lost me now. Because anything divided by infinity... I'm not sure... I, I may be going way too far into the weeds here. I mean, I don't know if dividing by infinity is undefined in, in the same way that dividing by zero is. But that's why I said tends to zero hmm. in, in the original construction, right? If you, if you take one over six, right? The, the chance you'll get a one on a six-sided die. Right that has a certain probability. You roll it six times, and on average, probably one of those times, it will happen once, right? Right. We all play D&D &D here. <laughs> there are D12s. A D12 has twice the number of sides as a D6. Right. So now you have to roll it 12 times to get a, a one on average. Right. Right? The, the probability has halved. It is smaller than it was before. Right. Now, say you have a a 24-sided die, or a d20, which we do actually have, mm. the probability gets smaller again, right? The, right. The bigger the number of sides on the die, the smaller the probability gets. I see. And so if you imagine, as you increase that, right. as you increase it towards infinity, mm. the probability gets progressively closer to zero. Right. Never quite reaches zero, mm. but it becomes essentially equivalent to zero. Right. And if we have an infinite number of possible futures then the probability that it 
lands on any one of them mm. tends to zero. I see what you mean. But when it has landed on it, then it's one because it's already <laughs> happened. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I see what you mean now. To be honest, the whole concept of, as, as a little bit of context here, I really, really, really suck at mathematics. Like really, really bad. Always have had a strong weakness in in mathematics. Strong weakness. A strong weakness. <laughs> a strong weakness. That's like a that's like a short, tall person, isn't it? Um, right. I've always had a an extreme weakness in uh, mathematics. But the idea of infinity has always kind of stumped me. <laughs> it's always confused me. You, you're in good company, there, okay? Because it has stumped. <laughs> Most people throughout history, and it continues to be very difficult for people to comprehend. Right. Yeah. <laughs> zero is something, zero is kind of like the, the borderline of sort of uh, abstract mathematical concept that I can understand, <laughs> because zero is nothing. But uh, infinity is kind of like everything and nothing all at the same time. And <laughs> it's sort of, uh, yeah, very, very uh, amazing stuff. Yeah, you're good at maths, aren't you? I'm no, I wouldn't say I'm that good at it. And oh, okay. uh, I think anybody who listened to my fumbled explanation of <laughs> probabilities amongst infinity will probably agree. But here's another interesting idea then okay. from quantum theory, okay. which I also know nothing about. Yeah, <laughs> this notion we were talking about earlier of parallel universes and the potential that with each potential difference in what happens, whether it's a different decision or just you know, one molecule sliding one way or the other over time mm. can split apart into a different potential universe and a different sequence of events. We talked about it with the idea that you have this sort of almost singularity, this moment that we are currently experiencing. Mm. And then in front of us, you imagine this kind of tree branching out being all the potential futures. And behind us, you can also almost imagine that we are one of a number of branches going into some common root, mm. right? With this this tree that expands wider and wider over time. Mm. But there's an, another sort of interesting idea which maybe plays into the idea of when we're talking about parallel universes. There's a number of experiments with photons. There's one called the split, I can't remember. It's called the double slit experiment. Right. Where you you fire a photon through this slit and depending on uh, some quantum effect, mm. it will either end up one way or, or the other. Mm. And through a certain sort of very specific measurement you can take of it, it actually ends up in both places at once. Right. I think that's the idea of this experiment. Again, I'm explaining this very badly, but that, that is a this notion of at the quantum level, things appearing in multiple places at once, but then resolving to having always been in one of them mm. is a common idea, right? Mm. And again, I don't claim to have fully got my head around this notion either. But consider that all these potential parallel universes we're talking about, they don't exist in this, in this tree we're imagining ahead of us branching out from the current moment mm. but they actually exist currently alongside us in parallel mm. for this moment and then they resolve to the one that we actually experience right how's that for an idea 
<laughs> right. I'm I'm actually drooling right now. <laughs> my my brain is shut down. I think. So this is uh, this is going to be very helpful for me on Saturday when I'm in the middle of the performance and I'm trying to sort of distract myself from thinking too much about the notes. I will recall this conversation, and the the uh, the drool shall. <laughs> shall dribble forth. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have. It's, I'm gonna have to take a little time to unpack that. I think, Danny. As, yeah. Also, I should mention I've forgotten the name of it, so I'll have to look it up afterwards and put it in the show notes. There is a film that I watched, which reminds me of a lot of these ideas. Hmm. It's actually a little bit different, but this kind of notion of parallel universes and, and stuff plays into it. Do you know the name of the movie? I am trying to... Yes. It is called Mr. Nobody. Okay. Yeah, so I've I found the Wikipedia page now. Uh, it tells the story of Nemo Nobody, a 118-year-old man who is the last mortal on Earth after the human race has achieved quasi-immortality. Mm. So that's kind of the initial idea, but I think from that description you would not guess the kind of movie that it actually is because it's it's uh yeah it's a very interesting interesting movie i enjoyed mm. it so i'll stick a link in the show notes about that and uh yes recommend it anyway mm. wow we went we went long and deep there mm.